Well, our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 16. It's just verses 17 through 20. Uh, I should say beforehand, as uh, I was working on this sermon, and the the reason why I chose this text and the reason I chose this topic was uh, not because there is an immediate immediate issue here in our church. I Actually, the reason I had been thinking about the issue of division— was because in the, in the months leading up to our own denomination's General Assembly, there had been those who had been sort of addressing publicly some of the issues that we as the PCA are dealing with. And one of the more interesting accusations that were raised against people who were concerned about the purity and peace of the church was, you are being divisive by bringing up any controversial subject. And it was a repeated refrain, and, and I heard it enough that I certainly thought to myself, I don't think Christians know how to think about division or what division is. And so as I was thinking about this morning, I thought, well, we can either begin this new series on the Gospel of John, uh, or we can wait until I return from my break. And so I decided, let's, t- let's talk about this issue. Let's talk about this subject of division where it comes from, and what it is. And so that is just, in just for your information, sort of the immediate cause of why I chose to take up this text this morning. I hope you'll find it helpful. Uh, I'm not sure if it's going to lift your soul up into the highest levels of heaven or not, but I hope that it is a blessing. I hope it's a benefit to all of us one way or another. Uh, but would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Hear now the word of God. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but by their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, you love your church and you love us. So would you show your love in a fresh way by helping us to see your glory and your word and equipping us to live the life of faith by giving us your spirit. Help us to see your word as true this morning and to do what Paul seeks here. Protect us from division and especially that division which comes from false teaching. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When you think of truly divisive periods in church history, one of the scariest, if you want, for lack of a better word, one of the scariest periods in church history was the period during the fourth century when there was tremendous conflict happening over the question of Jesus. And the church was wrestling through this question, who is Jesus? Is he God? Is he a created being? Is he an angel? How should we as a church 
think through what the Bible says about who Jesus is. And, and if, if that sounds like something that people used to argue about a great deal and sounds like something that is not near and dear to us today, I would just remind you every time the Mormons come knocking at your door, every time the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking at your door, they are going to have a very different answer than the one we find in Scripture and the one we find in our church creeds. And actually, that would also be true of Oneness Pentecostals. If you ever have much opportunity to interact with Oneness Pentecostals, they are going to have a very different answer to that question than we would. Well, in the, and, and also secular people and atheists. So uh, in the fourth century, they were debating these questions. And the question was, who is Jesus really? They were, uh, the church was agreed on who Jesus is, they were, they were agreed on the terminology of Jesus from Scripture, that Jesus was called the Son of God. But the one question they were left with was the question of, what does that mean? And so on the one hand, you had this fellow named Arius. He was very famous at that time. And one of the phrases that he would use, in fact, he would teach this song to children in the streets was, there was a time when Christ was not. There was a time when Christ was not. And believe it or not, children used to run around singing theology songs, and they would run around the streets singing that song by Arius, saying, essentially, there was a time when Jesus didn't exist, and he was created. And then on the other hand, you had this fellow named Alexander. Alexander uh, dealt with Arius for many years, and then Athanasius took over. Uh, So you had Athanasius, an Egyptian bishop who defended the historic Christian view that Jesus was the Son of God, uncreated, very God of very God, essentially what we have in our Nicene Creed today. In fact, he helped write the Nicene Creed, which we as a church affirm and believe. But the followers of Arius rejected the Nicene Creed. And so what happened? Athanasius stood his ground. He was thrown out of his church repeatedly. Every time the government would change and someone who was friendly to Arius would go into power, Athanasius would get exiled out of the Roman Empire. And then once somebody who rejected Arianism and accepted the Nicene Creed would come on the scene, then Athanasius would be back in his church once again. And looking back, you know, we could see that it was a precarious time for the church. Historians estimate It's always difficult to tell, but they estimate that at one time there were more followers of Arius than there were people who affirmed the Nicene Creed. And if you had been on the on the side of Arius in the fourth century, you would have looked at Athanasius and his people and you would have said, look at that man. Look at Athanasius. He is causing division in the church. You could see how from Arius' perspective that would be the case. Look at how that man, Athanasius, is dividing the body of Christ. But it sort of leaves us with this question, what is division? Is it really division to defend the truth? What is division? If someone takes a public stand against false teaching, is that person being divisive? Especially if that person is maybe the argumentative sort of person, which we are fairly certain Athanasius was. He was a rather pugnacious fellow, and he liked to argue. Well, I think our passage this morning helps us to think through the subject of division and what it is. And and Paul does this for us at the end of Romans under these three headings, 
which I'm going to bring us through this morning. The first is the nature of division. In other words, he explains to us what division is. What is it really? And where does it come from? Second, he offers the command of division. In other words, he tells readers what we ought to do about divisive people. And then third, he gives confidence in division. He wants Christians to know that even though the church may and does experience tumult and trouble from time to time, there is something stable and sure that we as the church can rest in. So we have the nature of division, the command of division, and confidence in division. So let's look at those three this morning. First, we see the nature of division. And by the way, we're going to spend the most time probably on this point. Uh, But even if you haven't seen division in your own church, and at least I haven't seen it, not the way that it's described here by Paul. I have not seen that here in this church. Uh, But you have probably witnessed churches that are experiencing division even now. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've heard of churches that have experienced serious division. Sometimes division is over substantive issues, issues that are deeply important to the gospel and theology and the sort of things that need to be tackled. But sometimes division can be very petty. Um, Years ago, my family and I uh, attended a non-denominational Bible church in Kansas, uh, the town where we lived. And I, I remember by the time I had left Kansas to go to seminary in 2012, that church had split. And the church had split because an assistant pastor had been fired. There were people in the church that disagreed that he shouldn't have been fired. And so they went with that assistant pastor across town, actually not across town, like two blocks away, and started another church, slightly bigger. Um, And so now the church had these two Bible churches with virtually identical teaching, identical preaching, identical beliefs, identical musical styles. And uh, last month, a friend of mine was, was visiting from from back home and he said that that church that had split off from the church had now split and created another third generic non-denominational bible church in the same town composed of the same people who had left the first and second church (sighs) so it just keeps happening it's like the blob just multiplies and so it isn't always the case that division is substantive Churches don't always split over important issues. In this case, it wasn't theology, it wasn't doctrine, it wasn't the purity of the gospel. It was egos and personalities. And sometimes that does happen. Now, there are other small sources of conflict in churches that can become bigger problems. You know, anytime you have a church building, you have a possible source of conflict. Um... I asked Robert if I could share this. He says that he said that's fine with him. Uh, I was looking through old minutes from the church, and it looks like back in 1997 there was a, a building project for our church that was being considered, and there were all sorts of different ways. How could we lay the church out? How could it look? And uh, and one of the plans basically looked like the fellowship hall we have now, but it didn't happen in '97. And and Robert wrote a letter to the church members, and he tells me he does not remember writing this. Uh, He says he doesn't remember this letter at all. But towards the end of the letter, he makes a a, a very, I think, a, a, a precious comment and an important warning during that time as there was consideration of building stuff. And and he said this, 
He said, as we approach this meeting, let us bear in mind that churches are notorious for polarizing over building issues. We have too peaceful a situation here to jeopardize that over someone's strong feelings about what ought to be done. This may well test our Christian maturity. May we all remember that not every idea can be adopted, even though it may be held intently by one proposing it. And I think what he's, what he's saying here is division can be petty. There can be division over things that in the big picture are, are petty. And I realize that, that for many people, building is a very important thing. Um, but in the grand scheme of the universal church and the rising and falling of kingdoms, the rescue of men and women and boys and girls' souls from the pit of despair, the color of the carpet or the color of the curtains definitely qualifies as petty. And I think we should probably admit most of our annoyances and pet peeves are petty as well. Certainly the case for me. But as Robert mentioned in the letter, that the solution to these sorts of potential divisions over petty things is for all of us to grow in Christian character and maturity. But see, often... That's on the one hand. On the one hand, division is, and that's not the kind of division Paul's talking about. But often division in a church really is substantive and it is over serious, important questions. And that's actually what Paul deals with in verse 17. Because the nature of division, as Paul spells it out here, is highly specific. And I want you to see this. Division... If you only remember one sentence from this morning, this is the sentence. Division is not caused by those who take a stand for truth or who press back against error. Division is not caused by that. Look what Paul says. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So we can pinpoint... What causes division? It is the person who teaches falsehoods. The person who teaches falsehoods is the one who brings this substantive division that Paul is so concerned about. And specifically, this isn't just any error. You know, Paul, Paul isn't talking about nitpicking someone over their view of the authorship of Hebrews. He's not saying if somebody gets the authorship of Hebrews wrong then they're bringing division into the church. Uh, He's not talking about someone who has a favorite translation of the Bible. He's talking about the sort of error that could destroy someone's faith. Or he uses this phrase, create obstacles. Someone who creates obstacles. Now, our our church standards have this, this phrase that it uses to describe this. They say, does this teaching strike at the vitals of religion? That's the phrase that our church uses, at least, to describe this sort of things. In other words, does this endanger the souls of people? If someone hears this and believes this thing that is being taught, would it endanger them? Would it bring their soul into some sort of of precarious position? Does this teaching affect our understanding of salvation? If someone believed this, could it keep them from the Lord? And I can give you a biblical example of this sort of division, not not from my own personal life, but from the Bible, from the book of Galatians. If you remember, Paul is writing at the beginning of Galatians, and he has experienced a moment like this, where someone introduced division into the church. And believe it or not, the person who brought the division was none other than the Apostle Peter. 
Paul talks about how Peter was living among the Gentiles, dining with the Gentiles, eating and drinking with the Gentiles. He was one of them. And then this change happens because these Jewish believers, they come up from Antioch, and when they get there, it's mealtime, and Peter just freezes. Suddenly, he's hesitating to go and eat with this Gentile fellow over here. Suddenly, he's afraid to do it. Why? Because the Jewish people who just showed up, they're going to watch him out of the corner of their eye. And they're going to see who he's going to eat with. And what happens? It was a divisive act. By the standard that Paul sets up here, because not only did it deny that God had brought Jews and Gentiles together when Peter hesitated to go and eat with those Gentiles, he was basically saying there are still really two classes of Christians. And for Paul, this had to be confronted. It had to be. It struck at the vitals of religion. Because their message of salvation, apart from law-keeping, would have been endangered if Peter's divisive act had been allowed to stand. The whole doctrine of justification by faith alone would have been undermined if, in fact, Paul had not said anything to Peter in this moment. So what did Paul do? He stood up to him. He publicly confronted him. He probably embarrassed him. And presumably when he did that, the rift was healed. But you see, some, some people, I think if they had been in the room at this moment, they would have been tempted to point at Paul and say, Paul, why are you rocking the boat? Why are you being so divisive? Why would you talk to Peter like this? And the answer is Paul wasn't being divisive at all. It was Peter. It was Peter. Peter was the one. Peter was the divisive one. He was quieter. He wasn't as loud. He wasn't as obnoxious. Uh, He made less people uncomfortable. Peter was just sitting over there. And yet he had brought the division into the church. So it's not always the person who's the loudest. It's not always the person who is the most obnoxious, who is the one who brings division into the church. Whoever is in the wrong is, be, is the one who is divisive. And we know someone is wrong only by the standard of Scripture. In other words, we need to take the behavior, we need to take the teachings that we see, and we need to hold it up to the standard of the Bible. I want you to hear how R.C. Sproul summarizes this. I think he does an excellent job here. He says this. He says, The ones who cause divisions and who upset people's faith are those who go against the apostolic teaching. When apostolic teaching is attacked within the church, it is our duty to stand up for the truth as the scriptures, truth of the scriptures. And if a division comes as a result of it, the cause of that division must be laid to rest on the shoulders of those who deviate from the apostolic truth. It is not just a case of deciding who is the majority and who is the minority. Those responsible for dividing the body of Christ will be judged by God, and that judgment will be against those who have departed from the apostolic teaching. If you ever are involved in bringing divisions in any way in the body of Christ, you had better make sure that you are standing on the side of the Scripture and not against the Scriptures. So that's Sproul from his commentary on Romans. And by the way... 
That final piece of advice goes for petty and substantive reasons for division. You know, to use the building illustration again, just because it's such a, always a live issue in every church. If the Bible doesn't tell us what color the carpet should be, how white the tiles should be, what color the stained glass should be, we should not divide over that issue. We have to let it rest. But to get more to Paul's point here, division is decided by the Bible. The Bible is the final decider of these things. That's the nature of division. Ultimately, Scripture decides what is and is not division. And so the question that we're left with is, what do we do about false teaching? What do we do about division? What does Paul say in this context? Well, that takes us to point two. Uh, The second point Paul makes is the command of division. Paul says very plainly, avoid them. That's his first way of dealing with it. He says, avoid them. He says, avoid those who throw up these obstacles in front of believers. I think that command is simple enough. When we see the error or when others point out that error is being taught, Paul says we have a Christian duty to avoid that person. One of my, my fears of the American church is many Americans are so beholden to social media. I don't know how many of you have social media accounts, but I suspect it's more than half. Um, And Christians are so beholden to social media that they are constantly uh, exposed to false teaching and they don't even know it, right? Because if you've got a friend and they've got a video and it goes up on their timeline and, and it starts automatically playing and the sound automatically starts playing and your senses are assaulted, you might hear something and you might even stick around for it and you might not know who this person is. You might not know who they're responsible to. You might not know what you're hearing at all. And yet it may very well tickle your ears. It may very well be intriguing to you. And you might stick around to hear it. And what oftentimes happens is uh, people, they, they, they will share a video. And, and you may very well uh, uh, hear serious error and not even know it. And the solution, of course, is maybe don't use social media so much. But the other... If you don't want to follow that directive, um, at least make sure that you follow trustworthy people, Uh, preferably people who are not anonymous, who who are accountable to the church for what they say and what they teach. You want to make sure that whoever you're following has a session that they have to answer to for their behavior online, for the things that they spread or teach. Um, We should follow people who have a proven track record, not of drawing a crowd, but of being faithful. Um, If the people you follow and admire most have managed to draw very large crowds, my advice is think twice. It is very difficult to be faithful and amass a huge following. As Paul says, compare what they say to what you've been taught. Compare it to the preaching you were raised on here in this church. Ultimately, though, compare it to Scripture. Is it true? Now, Paul gives two reasons why we should avoid false teachers, those he calls divisive. First, he says they're not servants of Christ. That's why we should avoid them. He says they're not servants of Jesus. They are servants of themselves. They're in it to build a name. They're in it to build a platform for themselves. They aren't here to serve the body. They're, They're here to draw eyes to themselves. Paul says they serve their own appetites. There was recently a pastor with a popular radio ministry. If you listen much to Christian radio, you probably in the last few years have even heard his, his Bible show. Um, and at the church that he helped to grow into a massive platform, it turns out he was doing a great deal to build his own platform. 
Uh, Later, it was discovered he was blackmailing his enemies. He was using church funds to build a multi-million dollar mansion for himself. He was giving lavish gifts, multi-thousand dollar gifts to his supporters in the church. And in the process, he was trying to hire a hitman to take out someone who disagreed with him. This is a name that is largely familiar. Sometimes we think this sort of thing is something, oh, uh, maybe a prosperity preacher might do this or something like that. This is a generic evangelical from a non-denominational church. And it is a cautionary tale that illustrates the danger of following someone who is in it for himself, who, who obeys his own appetite rather than God's calling. I would suspect if you had gone to this man early in his ministry and you said, guess what you're going to do by the time your ministry is over, he would not have believed you. But somewhere along the lines, his appetites became the motivator, his own desires and wants came to dominate his work. What a terrifying warning to pastors. When I spoke about this with my fellow pastoral friends, The first response we had was shock, and the second response we had was, he didn't start out that way. And it immediately left us all sort of terrified, the sort of things that can happen in the heart of even a minister. And what I would say is this, look to your own heart, look to your own ambitions, look to your own motivations in all your callings, whatever you are doing. Are we looking for a following, or are we looking to follow him? Second, Paul says we should avoid these people because they use flattery and smooth speech to fool people. That's how he explains it here. Um, One of the things I have seen repeatedly is that those who teach error in church history almost always claim to be misunderstood. They claim that there has been miscommunication. Uh, But the difference is they actually choose their words incredibly carefully. And they tend to be very charismatic and charming folks. Very rarely does an error taught by a weird loner devoid of personality get much traction. You know, um, you know the proverbial man sitting in his parents' basement uh, typing away in the angry forums online isn't exactly where errors come from. No, it's usually a smooth, handsome, gifted speaker who's quick on his feet and clever who spreads false teaching. People are drawn to it. There is confidence that disarms people and puts them at ease. And Paul says, if someone is known to teach falsehoods, avoid them. If someone uses smooth speech and flattery to get you to listen to him, if he's always praising you and telling you how wonderful you are and how great you are, avoid them. Keep away. Flattery and smooth speech. Why? Because if you don't avoid them, when you hear them, they are so persuasive, sometimes you're drawn in and pulled away. He says, avoid them because they're out for themselves, no matter how many clever slogans they use, no matter how much they use the name Jesus in their message. If they are those who create obstacles to the doctrine that you've been taught, do what Paul says for your own good, avoid them. Third, and finally, Paul concludes by giving us confidence in division. I think... That if you had listened to most of what Paul said here, you might be tempted to be discouraged or even have your confidence shaken. After all, Paul has been talking about people in the church who cause trouble. We don't like to acknowledge that. 
We would rather think of the church as a place that's always serene, that never has trouble. We'd rather think of the church with sort of rose-colored glasses. And yet the history of the church is virtually a history of conflict. <laughs> um, think about our, the church history class that we did in the adult and teen combined class that we had last year. It's almost like every single time we got together, what was I talking about? Another conflict. Another argument, another dispute in church history, uh, disputing over the nature of the church, disputing over the, the images of Christ, conflict over the nature of Christ, conflict over the authority of the church, conflict over the authority of Scripture, conflict over the Trinity, conflict over revivalism, conflict over slaveholding, conflict over liberal theology. Conflict over modernism, just century after century after century of church history is drenched in conflict. And here's what I want you to know. It's what Paul wants you to know this morning. Conflict is not a mark of a church in distress. The right kind of conflict is a mark of a church under assault. And the only church worth assaulting is a real church. Now, I know that's counterintuitive, but but hear me out here. On every side, the church is surrounded by error. Think about the time we live in. Our culture is in deep error. Our society is mired in confusion and error. Our politics are flooded with mistruths, confusion, and misstatements. And more and more, the church looks strange to the watching world. The church is like a fortress in the sea, and on every side, the waves crash against us. And to put it very dramatically, the armies of hell are constantly, daily, pounding on the walls of Christ's church. And every time that those waves crash and fly hundreds of feet in the air, it is a mark that the church of Christ is standing firm. Athanasius was exiled from the empire five times. And each time, it would have been tempting for Athanasius to look around and say, well, I guess I should just give up. I guess Satan won. And yet by the end of his life, the teaching of Scripture became the official teaching of the church. And Arius' views were condemned. The Nicene Creed became the official stance of the church. And we still believe it even to this day. In the end, truth did prevail in the battle. What was the promise that Jesus made, though? He said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail Against it. What a promise. That is, the gates of hell won't prevail, but they will fight. Conflict and trouble is inevitable when defending the church, and we should expect extraordinary pushback from the world we live in. There is no way to do what Paul says here this morning without facing the troubles out there and facing them. Headlong. But, but how does Paul end this morning? He ends with confidence. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God will do it. He will crush Satan and he will use the foot of the church to do it. Which means we have to stand strong and address error when it arises. And we do so while standing on the scriptures alone. They are the standard. 
Nothing else. Not our personal opinions. Not our preferences. Not something someone said on television. But only the Bible. The church is central to God's plan. The waves will crash. The conflict will happen. But let me say this. Let us make sure that when the conflict happens, that we are not fighting against God himself or setting ourselves against his church. The only way we know that is by holding fast to scripture. Let's pray. Our Father, would you fortify us for conflict, but also protect us from division? Would you show mercy to us by giving us unity in your Son and in your Word, faithfully taught? But also make us strong and ready whenever errors should arise. Give us hearts that are submissive to your Word, protected from ungodly ambition and subject ultimately to you through your church which you promise the gates of hell will never prevail against. Do this for us, O God, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.